Our scripture reading this morning is in John's Gospel, chapter 15. John's Gospel, chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 1 to 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me... You can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we consider this passage together, let's just ask for the Lord's help. God, our Father, we have been singing your grace so well, too deep to fathom. Your love exceeds the heaven's reach, your truth, a fount of perfect wisdom. God, our Father, when we think of the greatness of your word and of your love, we find ourselves 100% dependent on the Spirit of God to open our hearts to receive your word. So we just pray for the help of your Spirit that all that is said would be to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his precious and powerful name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of John's gospel this morning, and as we, uh, as we look at this, I'm reminded of a warning that uh, Stephen Lawson gave to preachers about long, introduction, long introductions to sermons. I think he said something like, don't make the front porch bigger than the house. And I, uh, I think I might be in danger of uh, breaking that rule this morning because while the message of this passage is very clear... There is a bit of groundwork that we need to to lay so that we might apply it appropriately. So let's start by getting our bearings. The Lord Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. They've shared the Passover meal together. And sometime during the evening, Judas went out into the night to betray the Lord. And after he left, the Lord calmed the troubled hearts of the disciples by focusing them beyond the trials ahead to the glory that lay beyond them. 
with he, the risen Son of God, at the right hand of the Father, and the Spirit of God sent to indwell them. But now the hour had come. It was time to move to the garden where he would look into the cup that his father had asked him to drink and submit himself fully to the will of the father and there be apprehended, tried, and crucified. And so he says to them, rise, let us go from here. And so I think that it's on the way to the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane that the Lord communicated to the disciples what we have in chapters 15 and 17. And so as he speaks these words to them, I believe he's walking fully aware that with every step he takes, it is taking him closer to the agonies of the cross. Yet he doesn't focus on his own sorrow, but rather on preparing the disciples for what they for what they are to do while he is gone. And that's, in fact, the subject of this conversation, what they were to do while he was gone. And what is it that they were to do? Well, they were to bear fruit. So we have the expression bear fruit or bear more fruit or bear much fruit six times in this passage. Why? Because that was what they were to be doing while he was gone. And it's important very early on in our study to understand what is meant by bearing fruit in the sense that the Lord referred to it here. Now, fruit has two functions, doesn't it? We enjoy fruit, but usually it is within the fruit that we find the seed for new growth. So I believe that we exist, or the the idea here is that we exist to glorify God and to lead others to Christ to glorify God and to lead others to Christ. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2 and 9, our brother quoted this in his prayer, we have that verse, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And in 2 Corinthians 2:15 we read that we are the aroma of Christ to God. So, as we proclaim the excellencies of Christ, and as we exhibit the life of Christ in our lives, it creates joy in the heart of God, and thus we bear fruit for God. And I believe a single Christ-glorifying thought in our hearts is fruit for God. But as we've already said, the fruit also contains the seed for more fruit. And so I believe what we also have in view here is the work of bringing others to Christ. So just as the singular function of the vine branch is to bear fruit for the gardener, so it is the single, singular function of the believer to bear fruit for God. Now vine branches aren't really good for anything else, are they? You can't build with them, and even burning them doesn't really produce a whole lot of heat. I know these days some people like to take vine branches and make wreaths out of them, but they really don't look that good unless you load them up with lots of artificial fruit and things like that. And the reason is because vine branches without fruit just look awful, and so do fruitless Christians. 
Now, how do you teach a vine branch to bear fruit? Well, you really don't need to, do you? It just has to stay connected to the vine. It does it all on its own as long as it's connected to the vine and abides in the vine. And that's why in this passage you read the word abide no less than ten times. So the great lesson the Lord has for the disciples in this passage is fruitfulness through abiding. And again, to help the disciples grasp what he's saying, he uses a metaphor. I am the true vine, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And so here we have the seventh I am statement in John's gospel. And these I am statements not only identified the Lord Jesus as the omnipotent God of the Old Testament, who identified himself to Moses as I am, they also helped the disciples understand what he had come to do. He had said, I am the bread of life, because he came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. He said, I am the light of the world so that man might be set free from moral and spiritual darkness. He said, I am the door for he is the only way to the sheepfold. He said, I am the good shepherd because he cares for his sheep and he lays down his life for the sheep. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life because he is the only way to the Father. And he said, I am the resurrection and the life because he gives life to the spiritually dead and he will raise all from the dead in a coming day. And now he says, I am the true vine because he is the source of life and fruitfulness. Now, the vine metaphor was used frequently in the Old Testament. We could turn to Psalm 80. We could turn to Isaiah 5. We could turn to places in Jeremiah like chapter 2 and 6 or Ezekiel 17 and Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10. But in those places, it was used with reference to Israel. Israel was the vine that bore no fruit. Now Jesus identifies himself as the true vine. He was the root out of a dry ground spoken of in Isaiah 53. The only one who walked this earth upon whom the Father could look in complete satisfaction and delight. The only one who had completely honored the Father in everything that he did. And the only source of life. So the Lord Jesus is the true vine. The disciples are the branches. And the Father is the divine gardener who watches over the vine and all that is connected to him to ensure fruitfulness. Now... With that rather lengthy introduction, let's consider this metaphor from two perspectives. First, first, what the Father does, and second, what the branches must do to maximize fruit bearing. Let's start with what the Father does. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, let's remember who the Lord is addressing here. It's the 11 disciples. So they are true believers, and I think that it's right and it's appropriate that we should apply this passage to true believers as well. These branches are said to be in me. And when a branch stops bearing fruit, he takes it away. 
Now, what does that mean? Well, I think the simple interpretation is that if a believer stops bearing fruit, the Father can and does take them away. Some Corinthian believers who came to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner were taken away in death. The Lord does not allow one who is his own to continue in a path of unfruitfulness indefinitely. Those who by their conduct bring a continued public dishonor to the Lord's name, he will remove. remove. And we do need to be warned. I remember in my early 20s, standing at the grave of a young man close to my own age who I had known quite well. And I will never forget his mother as she looked at me and said almost pleadingly, I know he was the Lord's. I know he was the Lord's. Well, I trust that he was the Lord's. Only the Lord knows. But he had chosen a path of disobedience and the Lord had taken him away. The Lord does not prune fruitless branches. He takes them away. But it's the fruitful branches he prunes. It's the fruitful branches that he prunes. So let's talk a little bit about pruning. I don't know how many gardeners we have here. Um, I don't know a lot about pruning. It's, it's really an art. I have tried my hand at it. But the one thing I do know is that in the spring, there are three things that you want to cut away. First of all, there's the suckers. Then there's the weak shoots, the weak, fast-growing shoots. And then there's the inward the inward-facing shoots. Let's talk about each one of those. First, the suckers. They're shoots off the main branch, and they tap the nutrients of the vine, but they never produce any fruit. Now, we all sort of have some suckers in our lives, don't we, that take up our time and our energy but never produce fruit. They may be pastimes. They may be encumbrances. Maybe be unprofitable companions, but they rob the Lord of fruit from our lives. And these the divine gardener must prune away. Well, next there's those frail, fast-growing shoots. And they'll bear fruit, but they aren't strong enough to hold the fruit. And so a strong wind will break them off, and the fruit won't remain. And there are times when our public service And ministry is out of balance with our private inward growth. Private victories always have to precede public victories. For they produce the character that enables us to withstand the winds of public pressure. Sometimes the divine gardener needs to prune away things that we think in our lives are very fruitful. But he in his wisdom knows that they are unsustainable. That they will not yield lasting fruit. And the third thing is those inward-facing shoots that don't grow out towards the sun. And there are in us as well, sometimes those inward-facing buds of self-preoccupation, whether it is arrogance or self-loathing. And these bear no fruit like the outward-facing buds that thrive in the brilliant presence of Christ. And in service to others. These also the Father must prune away. So the suckers, the fast growing, frail shoots, and the inward facing shoots need to be trimmed away, and this is the work of the divine gardener. And we can talk about all this in a very poetic way, all as, as if it was an easy, painless business. 
But the work of pruning is by no means a painless one. The cutting away of the fruitless things in our lives is indeed painful, and often it is very humbling. In her book, The Beautiful Presence in the Garden of the Soul, Elizabeth Ward says, and I quote, It is not pleasing to our natural hearts to feel like we are being swayed and directed, nor protected and environed. We want to be free, to follow our own bent, and to grow upward and outward or sideways in our own fashion. This wish for independence seems at first sight to be a sign of greatness of strength. It sounds like nobility of character to say, I prefer to stand alone. I shall form my own opinions. I never retract. I never regret anything I do. But the spirit, that spirit is only another form of self-interest. It is, alas, the same spirit which first entered the universe through the person of Lucifer, who was once the son of the morning, close quote. So the pruning process is by no means an easy or painless one. I remember years ago, there was growing on our garden fence uh, some wild grapevines. And I thought they were actually quite beautiful, although the the fruit was hardly enjoyable. But one day, uh, a man who was quite skilled in pruning came to our home and said, would you like me to prune those grape branches? And I agreed to it thinking that he might clip a few clippings off here and there. What could it hurt? And so I went away. But when I came back to my dismay, there was nothing left but a vine, it seemed, and clippings all over the ground, and I was not pleased. But that season, that vine took off like I had never seen it take off before. And I had to acknowledge the skillful hand of the pruner, He had done what was best for the vine. I've heard it said that the more skillful the pruner, the more he can take away without harming the vine. And there is no more skillful pruner, brothers and sisters, than the divine gardener, than the Father. He knows just what he's doing, and there is not one unnecessary cut in our lives. Not one cut that doesn't have a purpose. And let's not make the mistake of thinking that the trials and afflictions in our lives are a mark of God's displeasure. God does not waste his pruning on fruitless branches. He reserves it for those with the greatest potential. In his book, Looking at the Right Side, J.R. Miller, an American author from the late 19th century, put it this way, and I quote, There is never any careless cutting, any unwise or mistaken pruning any needless removing of rich branches or growths. All the trials, sorrows, and losses of our lives are parts of our Father's prunings. We cannot know the reason for the painful strokes, but we know that he who holds the pruning knife is our Father. That is all we need to know. Close quote. Well, we've talked about what the Father does, Now let's move on and talk about what the branches must do to ensure fruitfulness, and that is abiding. Look with me again at verse 3 and 4. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now notice the order here. 
first were made clean by the word Jesus had spoken to them. Then they are urged to abide. First they're made clean by the word Jesus has spoken to them. Then they are urged to abide. I don't want you to mistake abiding for salvation. And don't make the mistake of of, uh, conflating abiding with keeping your salvation. Or we will go astray in interpreting and understanding these verses. When it comes to salvation, it is all his work. We cannot contribute to it. Even the required repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ are a gift from God. And when it comes to our security in Christ, this too is God's work, not ours. So abiding is not about salvation, though it is evidence of salvation. Rather, it is about fruit bearing. And it's important that we get that straight. Because unlike salvation where there is nothing I can do, when it comes to abiding, there is the believer's part and there is the Lord's part. That's why it says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. How does he abide in us? Well, I think we have that in the previous chapter in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So God takes up residence in the life of a believer and abides there permanently by his spirit. That's God's part. Our part is to abide in him. Now, under this topic of abiding, there are three subtopics, three subtopics, and I want to spend the remaining time we have, ten minutes or so, talking about those three subtopics subtopics. And they are diligence, or rather dependence, diligence, and obedience. The three keys to abiding. Dependence, diligence, and obedience. Let's start first with dependence. And I mean, that's really what abiding is. Look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do Nothing. No thing. Abiding is recognizing that I am completely and utterly helpless without him. It's refusing to lean on my own understanding. It's refusing to rely on my own strength. It's looking to him and drawing the strength from him for every circumstance in life. And it is the opposite to independence and self-reliance and pride. And the Lord Jesus modeled this perfectly in his life on earth. In Mark 1.35, it says, Rising early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. What an example of dependence on the Father. And again in John 5.19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. His was a life of complete dependence on the Father. And this is the example he's left for us. It's pride to imagine that we can do anything without him. True humility to recognize that all of my activity, apart from him, yields nothing. And brothers and sisters, we have to get that clear in our hearts. The flesh profits nothing. 
Oh, how we learn, need to learn dependence, for that's how we, de- we abide in him. But what happens when we get away from dependence on the Father? What happens when we start to think we can go without spending time at his feet each morning? What happens when self-confidence and pride take hold of our lives? Well, what does it say in verse 6? If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. What does that mean? Now, some would apply this to unbelievers, and I think that's a valid, that's a valid application. Those who profess a connection to the Lord, but it's superficial, like those in Matthew 7 and 21 who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How easy to conflate Christian busyness with fruitfulness. How easy to assume that those involved in good works have a connection to Christ. So it is possible to have dead branches that get so tangled up in the leaves of the live branches that they look like they are connected, but they really are not. So I think that is a valid application. But I think we can apply this verse to believers as well. Let me explain. Notice that those doing the gathering and burning are not said to be the angels sent by the Son of Man as with the parable of the tares. And it is possible, I believe, for a true believer's life and testimony to be, as it were, thrown in the fire by man. That sort of happened to David, didn't it? Because of his adultery and his murder, he caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. They threw his testimony in the fire, so to speak. And this seems to be happening at an alarming rate in Christian circles today. He says he's a Christian. What a joke. What a joke. Paul said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. And I want to be clear and I want to be understood. A true Christian can never be lost, but one who is not abiding can have a saved soul but a lost testimony. Their whole life's work and testimony can be discarded, cast into the fire by those whose lives they've touched. And the greater the influence and reach, the greater the damage. How tragic and how each one of them, of us, including myself, needs to be warned. So we abide in him through complete dependence upon him like the dependence of a branch upon a vine. But God is not just satisfied with some fruit, is he? He wants much fruit. And that takes us to our next key to abiding. We've talked about dependence. The next key to abiding is diligence. Look with me at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You see, the new life longs for the word. And where there was a constant feeding on the word and applying it to my life, something happens. I begin to think and act biblically. Decisions are made in the light of the word. My very desires are conformed to the desires of God, and I begin to articulate before God the very will of God, and that results in answerable prayers that produce yet greater fruit in my life. And then what happens? Look at verse 8. 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Prove to whom? To God? God doesn't need proof. He knows. Prove to others? Yes. But prove to yourself. Fruit in the life of of the believer produces assurance. It produces assurance. That's why it says in 1 Peter 1 and 10, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Sure to whom? Sure to you. So often I speak to people who lack assurance of salvation in their lives. And no matter how many verses you give them, that fear remains. And it doesn't go away until, guess what? They start bearing fruit. You see, you can't assure a fruitless Christian. You can't give a fruitless Christian assurance. You want assurance? Then depend on him. Let his word dwell in you richly. Experience answers to your prayers, and your insecurities will melt away. I think that's really important for the children here as well, because sometimes children struggle with assurance, right? But as you read the word of God, as you think about it, and as you try to put it into practice in your life, those fears and insecurities will melt away as you begin to bear fruit. But it takes diligence. It takes early mornings. It takes long hours pouring over, praying over, and applying the word to our lives. May God grant us diligence in the word. It's the key to bearing much fruit. Well, we've talked about dependence and we've talked about diligence. Let's talk about the third key to abiding, and that is obedience. Let's look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. What do you think Jesus meant by my joy? Well, I think he is referring to the personal joy he experienced on earth as he lived in complete obedience to the Father. And I think you have the same thought in John 14 when he says, My peace I give unto you. See, as he lived in perfect obedience to the Father, he enjoyed perfect joy and perfect peace. And it is that joy and peace, his own personal joy and peace, that he gives to us. But it is in the path of obedience that we enjoy it because it is in the path of obedience we abide in his love. The warmth of his love is experienced on that pathway. Well, you say, doesn't the Lord love us all the time? Yes, he does, but we're not always experiencing and enjoying that love. In Jude one twenty one, we read, Keep yourselves, keep yourselves in the love of God. How can I keep myself in the love of God? We've all, ex- all experienced the warmth of the sun on a cool day. But if you move into the shadows, you don't experience it anymore. The sun doesn't stop shining, but you don't experience it unless you put yourself in the place where the sun's rays can get to you. 
And so it is with the Lord's love. It is constant and it is unchanging, but you need to put yourself in a place where you can experience. And that place is in the path of obedience. And this has immense power to bring us through the most difficult of circumstances. Consider Hebrews 12 and 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I believe that the joy that was set before him was the joy of doing the Father's will. And when we start to experience the joy of doing the Father's will, And the peace of living in the center of the Father's will will find the strongest motivation possible to continue no matter how great the darkness around us. For the love of Christ constrains us. For we thus judge that if one died for all, then all were dead. And that he died for all, that they who live should no longer live unto themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So the three keys to abiding are dependence, diligence, and obedience. I want to conclude by asking you three questions. Three questions. Are you feeling this morning the pruning knife of the divine gardener? Are you feeling the pruning knife of the divine gardener this morning? Take heart. God only prunes fruitful branches. He will not destroy you. Rather, he is taking you into paths of greater fruitfulness for his glory and for your blessing. The second question, have you stopped bearing fruit because you're unwilling to let go of something that produces dishonor rather than fruit in your life? Then I need to warn you, God will not let unfruitful branches remain. I charge you to repent and to return. For the divine gardener removes unfruitful branches. And the third question, are you striving and frustrated in your service for God? Feeling unvalued, unappreciated, ineffective, You know, the key to fruitful ministry is not striving. It's not striving. It's dependence. Drawing all your strength from him alone. Dependence on him. Diligence in the word and obedience to God. Just start enjoying him. And let him take care of the breadth of your ministry. And you focus on the depth by abiding in him. You know, it's hard to imagine that in an audience this size that There's not someone here that's hiding among the leafy, fruit-bearing branches of others but has no fruit at all because they have no life. And if you came in this morning in that condition, you don't have to leave here in that condition. You can have life, and you can have life abundantly. But it all starts at the cross where Jesus was heading as he spoke the words in this passage. There on the cross, he bore the wrath of God against sin. There on the cross, his precious blood was shed. And there at the cross, a trembling sinner finds mercy and forgiveness. For God is satisfied 
God is satisfied with the work of Christ and has raised him from the dead, and now all who come through him are never turned away, but they receive life and life abundantly. I want that for you. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. There the bright and morning star shed his beams around me. And for those of us that have knelt at the cross and found forgiveness and cleansing, we are invited by Christ himself this morning to his table to partake of the symbols, the symbols of his body and his blood and to remind us of how powerfully connected we are to Christ, the true vine, and from him draw the strength to face another week. So let's come as brothers and sisters to the Lord's table this morning.